<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In Episode 6, Just Science interviews Barbara Gutman from the National Institute of Standards and Technology about the first large-scale black box study to test the accuracy of computer and mobile phone forensics. In forensic science, black box studies are used to measure the reliability of methods and techniques that rely on human interpretation. Barbara Gutman and her team at NIST are working to measure the overall competency of the digital forensics community at large by releasing an open enrollment online test available to interested forensic scientists. Listen along as she discusses the parameters of the test, the expected results, and the value of the study in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. Mike Planty. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Planty, with NIJ's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Here today to help us with the discussion is Barbara Gutman from National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. Welcome to the podcast, Barbara. Thank you, Michael. Barbara is the manager of the Software Quality Group at NIST Information Technology Lab. Um, her res- areas of responsibility include software assurance and computer forensics. In computer forensics, her group runs the National Software Reference Library and the Computer Forensics Tool Testing Project. She is uh, active in both scientific working group on digital evidence and has been working in the area for 20 years and is a leader of NIST Digital Forensic Research Program. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the foundation studies on digital examiners. Uh, when we're talking about a foundation review, wh- what's the purpose of that, Barbara? The purpose of it is to look at each of the forensic disciplines and really get a deep understanding of the scientific basis for each of them. What do we actually know? What are we still learning? To, to, to actually go deep per discipline. What are the impetus for these foundation studies? Well, it, I mean, a lot of this, of course, started back with the, with the NAS report and followed up with the PCAST report, that people don't have an understanding of what science we really know for each of the disciplines. You really can't talk about forensics broadly because there's so many disciplines within it. And, and people, people actually didn't know. So we thought we should answer that question. And so the 2000 National Academies of Report, of course, and the National Commission on Forensic Science both recommended that NIST lead these efforts. Is that correct? Right. At various times, people will sort of come to NIST because we're, I like to think we're a respected scientific organization and say, well, sort of fix the problem. Like to sort of say, well, NIST really is a position to sort of bless which science, which forensic science is good or bad. So we decided to take a step back and, and let the whole community know what, what do we really know? We as a community really know. So it's really about what is the state of the art of each of these forensic fields. Exactly. So the foundation reviews involve a, a few steps, literature review, review of scientific methods. Can you talk about uh, the process of a foundation review? Right. So 
the collection of, of just the literature review itself, especially in the in the digital space, is quite difficult because the field of computer science is so broad and digital forensics itself is so broad. So it's a it's a little bit more manageable in some of the other spaces, but they'll they're gonna find that they're there are a lot of tangential scientific and technical underpinnings that they're, they're going to need to address also. So I, so we're looking at collecting a literature review. We're going pretty broad and deep for each of them. And then there'll be this sort of analysis of the methods and how does it, you know, you have this big pile of literature and knowledge, like you have to analyze it and figure out what, to, well, what does it mean? And then when possible, we're also going to do uh, an interlab or a black box study of some kind to sort of connect the the theoretical with the practical. Like, well, what, I mean, when people ask, is it scientific? What they're really asking is, is it reliable? You know, kind of at the end of the day, probably people wouldn't care if it was witchcraft if it always got the right answer, right? It's a yeah. stand-in for a different question, which is how reliable is this? Yeah, it's really about establishing the trust in the methods that uh, scientists are using. Right, and of course, there are a lot of pieces. There's the methods that are used, but they're also how they're practiced in the real world. You know, you can have a method that's so difficult, nobody can do it correctly, right? Or you can have other methods that are so expensive and time consuming that they're not practical from a justice point of view, right? You know, we, we kind of mm -hmm. want the answer sooner, not, not in a hundred years. So the, the interlab is, is um, or black box study is the practical side of that. And it's of course, because you have to deal with the real world, it's can't be quite as broad ranging as the uh, scientific li literature piece and the analysis piece. And so when uh, NIST and your group uh, goes about these foundation uh, studies, could you talk a little bit about the process? Uh, how do you, who do you involve in these studies? Who's doing the literature review? Uh, who's setting up the, uh, the methods to demonstrate the science uh, reliability? So they're each done a little bit differently. The digital one is, most people have a sort of, get a sort of committee of experts together to help advise them. They're being led by the NIST Special Projects Office, through uh, John Butler, who you're probably familiar with for his work in DNA. So people, it has to be sort of driven by the kind of science that it is. And the forensic disciplines, you know, they're pretty different one from the other. I mean, there's some that group together, but at the end of the day, you know, the DNA and the digital are pretty different, both in practice and in their, and in their science. So NIST already has, um, I already have a, a steering committee from law enforcement who meet who I meet with every three months for to support the the National Software Reference Library and the Computer Forensic Tool Testing. I'm already very involved in SWIG DE, which has a nice uh, mix of federal, state, local, private. It has a lot of e-discovery people. And recently, I got involved with the OSAC. So there's there's already a lot of movement in the digital community. And NIST has jumped on these um, foundation studies uh, over the last couple of years, beginning with DNA mixture, uh, you're doing firearm impressions, and bite marks, right? Those are the only ones that are officially in the scientific foundation process program. But there, there's other work that's going on that's related. There's been a lot of work, especially in FACE. Um, they, they do, they've been doing interlabs for a while. So we've also been talking to them. There are other work going on at NIST that we're building upon, not just the ones that are officially in the scientific foundation project area. So for the digital evidence, the 2009 report, NAS report, uh, actually, the, I just looked at that chapter again, and it labeled... Uh, 
it was an emerging forensic discipline, digital and multimedia analysis. And that's just well, almost 10, 12 years ago. And just the current state of digital evidence is just presents many, many challenges to the changing nature of apps, the changing nature of phones, uh, computers, mobile devices. It's, it's a really exciting time. Yeah, digital is, I mean, there's probably, there are probably very few major cases that don't have a digital piece because everyone, everyone has a phone, everyone has a car, everyone has email. I mean, it's just, it's everything. The, the major uh, points of communication. And so almost every, every crime, right, will have some sort of digital evidence attached to it. So when we talk about um, the digital investigations, say a little bit more about the interlaboratory, just for folks out there who might not understand what you mean by that. So for the interlab, what we've done is we created two fake cases. One is a mobile phone and one's a computer, a regular PC. And we have a crime scenario associated with each of them. And then we have a series of questions that might be the kind of things that digital examiners would be asked to answer, like, you know, what app has evidence of a drug deal? You know, that the kind of stuff you would really want to know. So we're see, we'll, we'll see whether people are doing a good job answering their, their easy, medium, and hard questions associated with each of the two cases. Um, and we're going to see how well the field does coming up with these, with the right answers, finding the evidence. Yeah, and this is what you're referring to, the black box study that was uh, just released pretty much uh, this month, right, in June, and you're inviting practitioners. It's open to everyone, so it's just available. For the bullet black box, you know, they have to actually mail bullets around to each other, so somewhat more limited in terms of how many labs they can include, and the same with the DNA. They have to actually mail stuff to people, whereas this one you can register online and just download it, so I'll tell you our numbers as Three weeks in, we had 443 registered users, of which 392, we've actually sent the uh, tokens so they can download the cases. And we already have 62 responses. So, yeah, so you, you, you identify that they're legitimate experts or practitioners? We have a one check. So when people come in, when they register, they answer questions about their lab. Like, are you an accredited lab? Are you big? Are you small? Are you federal? Are you state? Are you U.S.? Are you international? And then they provide us their work email, which we then verify that the work email matches that kind of organization. And then we send them the token where they can download the cases and then they can come back in and answer questions about themselves, like how many years of experience do you have, those kinds of questions. It's not a full check, but you don't want a bunch of just people on Gmail coming in and saying they work at the FBI when they don't. It is anonymous at the end. We will get rid of those emails, but we are we are double checking them. So sometimes they're a little harder than others, you know. The purpose of this black box again is to really uh, collect some basic information around the organization and around the individual examiner's experience, certification, training, and then to um, give them the simulated test and then see again black box. You don't care how they got the answer, but just see if everyone's getting the same right answer. Correct. It's multiple choice, so it will make our analysis work a lot easier. We learned that from the DNA people. They're like, don't, don't have to interpret people's answers. It's really hard. Your expected results are to see how well people are reproducing across uh, these different environments. Right. So it, it will tell us the general state of practice for the field. 
And then you could go a little bit further because you're getting the background questions around the lab. So maybe larger labs with more resources are resulting in more experienced examiners. So you could say something about maybe the attributes related to folks that are getting it right or wrong. We set it up so we can hopefully do that analysis. We'll just have to see what the data says. And how long are you are you keeping this uh, open for? Our initial target was three to four months, but we then but we really have had no idea how many people would sign up. My minimum bar was a hundred responses, and one month in, we're already at sixty-two or whatever number I said. I think we'll get that, and then we'll look to see. Like some of our initial ones were a lot of international, so I'd actually hope to get like at least a hundred U.S. ones, but. You know, it's possible we could get we could get a thousand, which is also fine. I mean, we can write a lot of reports off this data. We don't have to hand pick the data, so we can handle a thousand responses. Do you have a lot of people on the edge of their seats when you do these foundation reviews? <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. we do. <laughs> what if you know it comes in and everyone gets the wrong answer? What if? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, the people I work with in the digital forensics field are great, but of course, it's also there's a lot of bias, like. People send their good people to swing DE and to meetings at NIST, right? <laughs> like, there's a lot else out there that's not very good. It's just, but what I see, I mean, I think is very impressive. So this is one way to assess the field, right? So do, is there any pushback on the type of tests you're doing here from, from folks in terms of, have there any, any been any critics of, of this, um, this one approach to your foundational study? Not so far. So the test were, NIST actually didn't develop the test ourselves. The mobile test was developed by the Secret Service. They do a lot of work in mobile phone forensics. They do a lot of casework, and they do a lot of training. Because I really wanted people with those attributes to come up with cases that were more things you would actually really be asked in casework, and with a good understanding of the skill levels, because they've seen a lot of people come through their training. And then NW3C developed the PC test for us. Some of their instructors also do casework, right? They, they have a combination of people. So the person who built it, does casework and does training. I really wanted that level of background. And then I tested them with two labs, state labs. Well, actually one a county level, one well, one a city. You gotta you gotta try it out on a couple other people before you release it in the wild, right? And so you anticipate um you, you know get, getting your numbers and then this will be developed into a report that will be presented to the field? Yes, it will be published as in this report as part of the Scientific Foundation Report, and it will be tied, all three of these pieces will be in one report together, right? And uh, you're doing the proficiency testing? This is not proficiency testing for a couple of good reasons. One is we're looking at the state of the field. If we find a very different state of the field than what people are seeing from their proficiency testing, that would mean that proficiency testing has to change. We have been in contact with one of the proficiency testing vendors, and we're going to we haven't quite figured out how we're going to do it. We're going to try to do some sort of comparison when we're done because, I mean, one of the questions we ask is, have you taken a proficiency test? And if there isn't a, if having taken a proficiency test is a correlates with something bad, then clearly that means yeah. we need to, the, the field of proficiency testing needs to, to improve. Um, but we don't, you know, we'll, we have to see the data to know what that is. And, and this isn't a proficiency test. Like people, we're not publishing an answer key and we're not telling people the answers. You don't get a score back because that's what proficiency testing does. We wanted to leave this open because there's a potential harm that can come to people. If you take the NIST test and we publish the answers, you'll you'll have to divulge on the stand how well you did, right? So we want to actually be about the field as a whole. So we want as many people as possible to come in. 
and so when we worked with our human subjects protection office they recommended this and i thought well that's a good idea and there's sort of been some questions back and forth it's people are like but if people are doing badly shouldn't shouldn't people find out like that is the role of proficiency testing it's a very important thing and there's something specifically there's an actual real process for that this is not proficiency testing this is testing the field as a whole yeah and your expected results, uh, we, we talked a little bit about that, you know, um, but what would be an acceptable, you know, when you think about the results as a whole, the field as a whole, what would be considered acceptable? The, the one that I think will be most interesting is how many skips we get on things. So it's really bad if you give the wrong answer. So each question can be skipped, you know, like, well, then that would might just mean, well, at least they're not giving the wrong answer, but they're not going as deep as they, they should be going. Right, they should have. That, that would imply we need to have a lot more skills-based training out there for people, you know, or there are a lot of people doing this who really perhaps should only be doing the very easy cases. Right, that would have a fine. It's hard to guess what would happen depending on what data shows up. It will. So we'll end up being data-driven. We'll just have to see what the data is and try to make sense of it. You know, in the worst case, if a lot of people are getting the wrong answer, then you know, time for the field to have a reckoning and saying, you know what, you all need to really up your game for your skills training. And for your proficiency testing and your certifications, it's like, I don't think that's going to happen, but it could. This is important work. Exactly. Right. It's really exposing potential gaps that uh, where you need further attention. And, and so the, the, um, the types of tests you have in here, is this the first step, given the, the dynamic nature? I mean, you have a mobile phone and I believe in a, in a computer hard drive. Are there other tests you can imagine that would be um, useful? Absolutely. I mean... These are, you know, the two most common things people run into, mm -hmm. but, you know, vehicle forensics is a big growing field. You know, there have been a lot of mis potential misinterpretations. I mean, we could do like cell site analysis. I mean, there's like a zillion things one could do and they'd all be so much fun. I mean, there's a lot of stuff with getting stuff off cloud systems. That'd probably be the next one I would suggest. We don't want people to have to get a warrant for a fake case, right? <laughs> you gotta get... Yeah, there, there are limitations to every type of testing <laughs> in terms of whatever you can accomplish there. So when we talk about this general field, about reviewing the state of the field, where, where do you see uh, the future of this type of work? There's so many exciting places to go. One of them is to address some of these deeper issues that people get caught up on. Like people, for a while, everyone was like, well, digital forensics, and it's not really a forensic science, it's a something else. And those questions, you know, at the end were very circular and, you know, contemplating your navel. It's like, we're doing this, let's make sure we're doing it right. But also to develop a more in-depth understanding of the nature of uncertainty. This is for all the forensic sciences. So, you know, we've, we've moved away from the, you know, a reasonable degree of scientific certainty because nobody actually really knew what that meant. And some people are embracing likelihood ratios and some people are addressing error rates. But I would really like to help the field get to a deeper level of uncertainty, certainly within the digital space, but true within some of the other spaces too, that people, like if you just rely on one of these mechanisms without really understanding what it means, you can also, you can miss things. You can get a a false sense of certainty from your, you know, uncertainty analysis, which seems sort of wrong, to look more holistically at, like, how do things fail, right? You really have to look at the big picture because you know you have methods, you have people, you have process, and to uh, to step back and, and then understand when statistics are being used correctly and when they're not being used correctly. I see people throwing around some statistics, and I'm thinking, like, I don't think, I don't think those means mean what you think they mean. You know, like, well, I, would, I would love to really delve more deeply into that understanding 
I think it'd be really exciting. Yeah, I think uh, there's also the need, like you mentioned earlier, you have a tool, but it's actually how the tool is implemented, right? And really understanding the, the social situations that a lot of these forensic examiners work under and trying to understand whether it's caseload or the types of cases and the impact on their assessment of the cases. It's really, I think, in general across the forensic sciences are really an under uh, undermet need right there, I believe. Right. So, yeah, and that's, you know, when you look at other fields when they sort of embrace, you know, what in the, I think it was in the 90s, we all called it total quality management. And it goes by different name decades, but it's the same basic concept of looking at the bigger picture to understand how you can achieve the most meaningful improvements. Exactly. Any other thoughts you'd like to cover? I want lots and lots of people to take this black box study. I'd love to have enough depth in all of my categories that I'd have, be able to pull some meaningful numbers out of it. When do you expect to report out? Is it later this year or? I'm, I'm hoping for this calendar year, but that, that would be at the hope level of uncertainty. It'll probably be early next year. Barbara, can you tell us what else NIST is doing in the digital evidence space? I would love to talk about what else NIST is doing in the digital evidence space. We have two major projects in digital forensics that are ongoing that we've been, we've actually been doing them for 20 years now. The first is the National Software Reference Library, the NSRL, which most people just call the hash sets. The people who publish the hashes of software so that people use for primarily for efficiency reasons. Like if you're looking for imagery, you don't want to be having to find the imagery that's associated with gaming software, which is rather a lot. We've recently actually expanded it to, the, to all of the major gaming platforms. We also have uh, mobile apps coming out on it. Uh, so if people have specific things they want, we actually do take requests because sometimes people use it to basically to ignore things when they're doing a case. And sometimes people use it when they want to be alerted to something. People have things on the list. NSRL and NIST.gov is our email list, is our email. And we also run the, this tool testing project, which has a lot of sub-projects. So the basic question is, how do you know your tools are working well? Well, the way to do it is testing. So we test, uh, we test by functional area. We don't test like an entire tool. So we'll test your ability to do mobile acquire, your ability to do write blocking, your ability to do, to recover deleted information. So we develop a specification and tests, but then we also are packaging that up in a program we call federated testing so that people can run the NIST testing methodology in the comfort of their own lab. So they can test the, their version of the tool and they can also share test results. They can either share, because we'll have a sort of standard report template, they can either just share them with their various colleagues, maybe they have some sister labs they want to work with, or they can come back and share them through NIST and uh, DHS, um, who publishes our reports. They can share them with the community as a whole, which at some point is, is just necessary, because NIST only tests about 20 things a year, depending on how many students I get. And we, there's so many more products that need to be tested. So the community, for our efficiency, we need to embrace this. And so if you do this testing, it's a lot easier to share when it has a known methodology and a common test report format. So that's another thing I'm sort of pushing pretty hard because it's where the community needs to go. We need to have high quality testing. And it's a real waste of time for 10 labs to test the same thing the same way. Like, really? Like, you all have other work to do. I know that. So soon we're going to be putting up a test report sharing website to make it easier to find specific things you're looking for in a test report. So now they're just up in PDF, which is not the most useful. So we're going to put up a website where you can look like 
if you wanted to test how well, you know, had anybody tested finding WhatsApp on an iPhone something, you know, they search at that level and find reports that were particularly of interest to you. So that's going to be coming soon. And we're also building a, a reference data set. There's a, there's a real need for tool developers, for validators to have you know, known reference data so you can either test your tool either as you're trying to build a new tool or whether you're trying to test the capability of a tool you already have in-house. Um, so we're building a new site to help people share reference data. And this creates a lot of reference data, but a lot of other people do too. And so this will help, hopefully help make that more findable. We run a tool catalog, which is a vendor-populated website that has a sort of basic taxonomy. So if you're looking for a tool that does, you know, cloud forensics, well, NIST hasn't tested any of that yet. So you could you can just see it's it's vendor-populated, but it's you know it's useful stuff to know where to start looking. And vendors can add can add their tools to it. They can actually also suggest new areas for us to list um, to help just people find things because everything changes so fast in our field. And in fact, in our tool catalog, it's actually a tools and techniques catalog. So you can actually just register a technique. It doesn't have to actually be an actual product. It could just be a set of steps. So there's a lot of pieces for stuff going on in digital forensics because it's fun, but it's there's always a new piece of equipment that's going to show up in your lab. And you know, you haven't seen it before, but you, you've got to find evidence on it. Really exciting. So yeah, anyone interested in digital evidence, of course, has to, has to go to the NIST website. And, uh, and hopefully get to more folks in your black box testing. I'd like to thank our guest today, Barbara uh, Gutman, for sitting down with uh, Just Science to discuss this role and foundation testing for digital examiners. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensic field, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Mike Planney, and this has been another episode of Just Science. In the next episode, Just Science interviews Dr. Kathleen Gagoris and Cole Whitecotton from the National Center for Media Forensics at the University of Colorado about deepfakes. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.